0: The Spirit of God is likened to a breath, a wind of change that was present not only on the day of Pentecost, but throughout the panorama of Scripture. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and Internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. A Breath A wind ushered in the power of God on the day of Pentecost, a breath of power much needed by a frightened group of fishermen, and with that wind came a fire that symbolized the very presence of God in their midst. Stay with Dr. Boyce now as he studies the power epitomized by that wind and fire, and how it emboldened a movement that would change the world.
1: I don't know what you think of, first off, when somebody makes a reference to the book of Acts. But if you're at all like I am, and as I suspect most Christian people are, whenever you think of the book of Acts, you think of Pentecost and Acts 2, because Acts is the great New Testament historical book that tells us of the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the early Christians at Pentecost and empowering them as the Lord Jesus Christ said, they would be powered for the task of world evangelization. I think for that reason that it's really not inappropriate to think of acts as the acts of the Holy Spirit. This book really tells us what God the Holy Spirit did to glorify Jesus Christ in the church through the early preachers of the gospel as the gospel spread. Chapter 1 that we've already looked at Leads up to that. Verses that begin chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, are the great initiation of the church. And then from that point on, in a sense, it is the history of the Holy Spirit's work. Now, chapter 1 is something we should have in our minds as we come to chapter 2. We've already looked at several different things about this chapter. We saw that it tells us about the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus begins with. This promise of the Holy Spirit is going to come not very many days hence. So we saw that everything that unfolds in this book is an unfolding of what God had already said in the Old Testament, and Jesus Christ repeated in a prophetic way was going to happen. So you have the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then in Those those verses that we know as the Great Commission, Luke's version in Acts, we have an emphasis upon the power of the Holy Spirit. The disciples were going to be sent into all the world with the gospel, but they weren't going to go in their own strength. If they had gone in their own strength, nothing at all would have happened. Here's Peter in Acts 2 standing up to preach in Jerusalem, at Pentecost, to the very people who had been instrumental in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Oh! Maybe not necessarily the leaders, though it's quite likely that some of the leaders were there, but the masses, the masses who one day had praised him as the king of David riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, Hosanna to him who comes in the name of the Lord. But a week later, we're saying, crucify him, crucify him. Peter stood up and preached to those very people. And if Peter had done it in his own strength on Pentecost, nothing at all would have happened. They would have ridiculed Peter, if indeed, they didn't do something worse. So when they preached the gospel and found success, when people were convicted of sin and brought to faith in Christ and drawn into the fellowship of the church, it was because of the Holy Spirit's power. And that's what Jesus talks about in this great commission. They're to go into all the world with the gospel and preach, but it's the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to accomplish the salvation of those to whom they bring the message. So you have that thing. First of all, the promise of the Holy Spirit, and then, secondly, the power of the Holy Spirit. And now we come to chapter 2, and that which we have been waiting for happens. Now, how are we going to look at this? I think the only way to look at it is the way in which the Holy Spirit himself gives it to us, because the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the writing of this book, like all the other books. So, if you want to know how we should think about the Holy Spirit and his coming at Pentecost, We ask the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has given us the answer, and the answer is here in these verses. How is this great event, this great initiatory event in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ described? Well, when we look at it carefully, we see that the Holy Spirit is presented to the senses of these early Christians in two ways. That is, He appears symbolically in two symbols. One is the symbol of wind. We read in verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And secondly, there's the symbolism of fire. We read, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. The way in which the Holy Spirit was presented to the disciples in terms of their senses, their ears, which they could hear, the sound of the rushing mighty wind, and their eyes, the tongues of fire, were in those two images, wind and fire, and it follows from that if we want to understand what the coming of the Holy Spirit meant, what it signified. What the Holy Spirit was going to do and accomplish in His people, well, then those two images are the ones by which we should understand it. That's the way God Himself presented the Holy Spirit to them and to us also. Now when we take those two, the image of wind and the image of fire, and begin to think about them biblically, what those two words signify, it's evident at once that the most important image of all is not the image of fire which is the second, but the first image, which is the image of wind. I want to try and show you why that's true. First of all, it's true linguistically. Now, we have trouble with this today because when we speak of spirit, spirit means nothing to us but spirit. But in the ancient languages, in the Hebrew language, the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, and even the Latin language that was spoken freely at this time, as you well know, the word for spirit was the same word that was also used for wind or breath. So when this verse says they heard a sound like the blowing of a violent wind, the word wind is the word spirit. So you see, when you're beginning to think in terms of the symbolism, that's the primary symbol. That's the thing that's obvious. Now, with that in mind, you go back to the Old Testament and you think about some of the key verses that talk about God's Spirit and how the Spirit of God operates. You find it at the very beginning of the Bible, first chapter of Genesis, verse 2. Verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And verse 2 says, And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Now, we read it in English, you see, and it doesn't mean anything. We, we, think, and sometimes I've seen it even portrayed this way in in art. The Holy Spirit is a dove somehow skimming over the waves that covered everything at the dawn of creation, but that's not it at all. The idea is that the Spirit of God is the breath of God, the creative, moving, dynamic breath of God, and this wind, this divine, spiritual, life-giving wind is blowing across the waters at the beginning of creation. That's the powerful image that you have in Genesis 1-2. Now secondly, you go chapter later, you come to the second chapter where you have the creation of Adam. You have a story of the creation of Adam in chapter 1, there we have the emphasis upon man being made in the image of God, in the image of God He created him. That is stressed, it's said several times over. In chapter 2 you have the story of the creation of man all over again, but here the emphasis is different. Here what we're told is that God created man from the dust of the earth, and having made man from the dust of the earth, the image we're supposed to have is something of a statue made out of soil. After man was made that way by God, then we read, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living spirit. Now, that's really significant, you see, because what that says is that apart from the breath of God, man was just matter. As he was dead, dead as any other matter, there was no life in him. And in order for him to have life, God, who is the source of life, had to breathe some of his life, some of the divine life, breath, spirit, into Adam, and so Adam became a living soul. Now, let me put in a parenthesis at this point. There you have a creation of Adam by God. Come to the New Testament, to the third chapter of John, where the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to Nicodemus about the new birth. And there you have the whole idea picked up again. because what Jesus told Nicodemus is not merely that in order to have eternal life and be saved, a man needed to be regenerated in some mystical way, he actually said a man needed to be born again. And the word he used for again. There's a Greek word that actually means again just like the first time. And also, because the Greek language is very rich at this point, from above. So he said a man needed to be born again just like the first time, and he needed to be born from above, that is, from God. Now, what's involved when Jesus is speaking those terms? Nicodemus didn't know. He hadn't the faintest idea. He said, you mean I have to go back into my mother's womb and be born again? Jesus said, no, no, you don't understand these things. Don't you know it's just like the wind, the Spirit, the wind, said Jesus, the Spirit blows where it will. And you don't see it, you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but its effects are seen. That's what it's like to be born of the Spirit of God. Now you put those things together and you go back and consider what's said of the creation of Adam back in the beginning and you find that the spiritual life that Nicodemus and all people need is presented by Jesus Christ in a way analogous to the creation of Adam. In other words, just as at the beginning God breathed into Adam, so he became a living soul, so in our day, if a person is to be saved, God has to breathe his Holy Spirit into them once again in order that they might become spiritually alive. You see, we we may be physically alive, we may be functioning as men and women, but spiritually speaking, we're as dead as we can be. And if we're to live to God, if we're to become attuned to spiritual things, beginning to understand them and hear the voice of God and respond in obedience and service, well, then we have to have imparted to us this spiritual life. And that is the Holy Spirit's work. Now, let me look at another term that's connected with that, this important word, filled. When the Holy Spirit came, they were, it says, filled, filled. The house was filled and then they were filled by the Spirit. I call attention to that because if we're to understand the Holy Spirit and what is said about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, you must understand that there is a distinction between the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we hear a great deal about, and filling with the Holy Spirit, which we hear much less about, but which we ought to hear about all the time. People talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit today as if that's what Pentecost is all about. You're baptized by the Holy Spirit, well then you have a spirit experience, and in some circles what is said is you speak in tongues. The very fact that you speak in tongues is evidence of the fact that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, that you've been baptized with the Spirit. That is not biblical terminology. Now, I want to say that the Bible does talk about a baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it's not in those terms. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is what I've been talking about in terms of regeneration. Baptism signifies not filling, not empowering, but identification of the individual with Jesus Christ. And that's what our sacrament of baptism signifies. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. And by very definition it follows the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a unique, never to be repeated act. You can't become a Christian again and again and again and again, you become a Christian once and therefore you're baptized by the Holy Spirit once and that is synonymous with regeneration. It's the Holy Spirit that accomplishes that in you and if you're a Christian you're baptized and if you're baptized by the Holy Spirit you're a Christian. That is no blessing to be sought a second, third, fourth, fiftieth, or a hundredth time. But now on the other hand, there is such a thing as the filling of the Holy Spirit and that's what's being talked about here. You see. The early Christians didn't become Christians at Pentecost, they were already believers, they were exercising their faith, they were praying, they were obeying, they were reading Scripture, they were already Christians, but now the Holy Spirit comes upon them in a special way to empower them for a special task, and when that happens, the word that is used to describe that is filling. It's interesting to study this in the book of Acts, that phrase filled with the Holy Spirit or filling by the Holy Spirit occurs 15 or 16 times in the New Testament. There are a few instances that occur during the Gospels, chiefly in reference to John the Baptist, and they are before Pentecost, and they really don't quite fit into this picture. But from this point on in Acts, you have about 12 or so of these references, 11 or 12. And in every case. What is spoken of is a special empowering of Christian people to a special task by God. Now, let's ask the question, when the Holy Spirit fills these people, not baptized by the Holy Spirit, those who are already baptized by the Holy Spirit are Christians, we're talking about those who are baptized by the Holy Spirit who are now being filled by the Holy Spirit for a special task. When the Holy Spirit fills these Christians, What is it that happens as a result of their filling? Do they speak in tongues? Well, they do in this instance, but not in the other 10 or 11. Do they do miracles? Well, occasionally, miracles are done chiefly through the apostles, but not in every case. What is it that ties all these things together? There's only one thing that ties them together. Every time the Holy Spirit comes upon His people in a special way, filling them, empowering them for a task. What they do immediately is testify verbally about Jesus Christ. You say, well, yes, that's what they did here. They did it in tongues. Well, yes, they did it in tongues, but the emphasis is not upon the fact that every man heard it in his own language, though that is true and very symbolic, but the emphasis is upon the fact that everyone heard about Jesus. They talked about Jesus, they testified to Jesus, and if you say, well, is somebody spirit filled? The way to answer that question is not by saying do they speak an unintelligible language, not by saying do they do miracles, it's not by saying if they had healings in their family. The answer to that question is do they testify to Jesus Christ and does God bless that testimony in the conversion of men and women? Now, that's the first image. Let me look at the second. The second image is the image of fire. Already, I'm sure you understand that there's a carryover from the first because the breath of God results in speech. And when this symbol of fire was presented visibly to the first disciples, it was presented as tongues of fire. So you have the carryover. Both of these images involve speech. But there's more to it than that in the case of the second image. What does fire chiefly symbolize? Well, again we go back to the Old Testament and when you do that you see that quite often in the Old Testament fire is a symbol of the presence of God. The earliest instant I can think of is in the 15th chapter of Genesis where God made His covenant with Abraham, a very significant covenant. Abraham was put into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping. He had a vision and the vision was a symbol of the presence of God. Abraham had performed an ancient rite of covenant making. He had cut animals apart and put them in two rows on the ground and it was customary in his day when somebody did that for two parties to the covenant to walk in the space between the separated parts of the animals and take their vows to one another. And the vow was understood to be particularly sacred because of the shed blood. You can understand that kind of ancient imagery. Now, in this vision, Abraham is asleep and he sees two symbols that represent God. One is a smoking firepot. That's the way it's described in the 15th chapter of Genesis and the other is a blazing torch. While Abraham is sleeping, the smoking firepot and the blazing torch pass back and forth themselves between the slain animals. And God doesn't ask Abraham's participation, Abraham doesn't have to do anything. God says, I'm going to do that, I, I stand by my word. And as He does it, His presence is symbolized by the blazing torch and this smoking fire pot. So that symbolizes God's presence. Well, let me say one more thing as we close. Here you have the coming of the Holy Spirit to fill the disciples, symbolized as wind which results in speech and fire, which results in illumination and the warming of the heart. What I want you to say is that this was not something that merely happened to them. It happened to them on this occasion but immediately after it happened, they went out of the house where they were standing and they began to do what this is all about, what the first chapter has anticipated and which is now fulfilled. They began immediately to talk about Jesus and what happened, to use the images, is that the wind swept over the crowd that gathered in Jerusalem blessing them and the fire which had first of all kindled The early apostles began to spread and produce what was certainly regarded, at least by the high priests of the day, as a great spiritual conflagration. Christianity is meant to be a spreading flame. The Lord Jesus Christ said on one occasion, He's quoted in the 12th chapter of Luke, verse 49, I came to bring fire on the earth. Some of our translations say, I came to cast fire on the earth. You go back to John the Baptist's testimony concerning Jesus, and John the Baptist said, I baptized with water, but after me there's one coming who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's what this is about, you see. And when Jesus said, I've come to pour fire on the earth, he meant a fire which is going to sweep over all the earth. How do we know? We know because that's the way he talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit in the words of the Great Commission. He said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and when you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to be my witnesses, and you're going to testify to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the world. And you see it began to happen right here. That's why the second paragraph of this section that we're studying begins to talk about all those who were present in Jerusalem and who heard the gospel in their own language. Here they're mentioned, All. There were those who were from Parthia, and there were Medes, and Elamites, and people from Mesopotamia, and Judea, and Cappadocia, and Pontus, and Asia, and Phrygia, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and so on, all the way to Rome. Generally speaking, the words kind of flow out like ripples on the pond in all directions until eventually to get to Rome. You see, the emphasis here, what this is talking about is not to say when the Holy Spirit comes, you ought to Experience what we call this this matter of speaking in tongues so that in a certain miraculous way, wherever you are, everybody's going to hear it in their own language. That's what it's talking about here. It's saying that when the Holy Spirit comes, people are going to talk about Jesus, and everyone is going to hear that in their own language as the gospel spreads by Christians obeying the Great Commission. And that's what you and I are called upon to do. That's the task which the Lord Jesus Christ sent us. Let us pray. Our Father, we read a story like this and we, we say, we often think this way. Isn't that wonderful that that happened way back then? And we never think of it really in terms of ourselves, unless we get off the track and think, well, we'd like a special gift of tongues. Our Father, as we read this, as we study it, We're aware that what you're talking about is not some unique experience way back then, but that sort of thing that is to happen always, where your people gather together and turn from their sin and seek your face and pray that you would fill them with power to accomplish this task that you've given all your people in every age. And Our Father, that is what we pray. We are not up to these things. We can speak by ourselves and no one will be converted. And what really happens is that we're even afraid to speak because we're somehow embarrassed to talk about Jesus. And it only shows how dry our lives are, how empty of your presence. And so, Father, we pray for filling, that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit and power. And then, become channels through which Jesus Christ is made known and channels of blessing to our age. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: You're listening to the Bible Study Hour featuring the teaching of Dr. James Boyce. The Spirit given by God to create unity in the church has often become the occasion for disunity because much of the understanding of the Spirit does not come from the knowledge given us by God. What's the solution? Find out in our free CD offer entitled Pentecost and the Gospel by author and teacher Richard Gatham. This free CD offer is our way of saying thanks for listening. Give us a call at one 800 Four eight eight eighteen eighty eight. We'll be happy to send you a copy of Pentecost and the Gospel. That number again is one eight hundred four eight eight eighteen eighty eight. Christ's charge to take the gospel to the world still stands, and you can be an important part of fulfilling that commission when you support Dr. Boyce's teaching here on the Bible Study Hour. Visit our website at thebiblestudyhour.org. You could also call us directly at 1-800-488-1888 and our mailing address is 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Thank you for your prayerful and financial support of this ministry. We are indeed grateful that you listen to the Bible Study Hour. As you reach out to us, be sure to mention the call letters or dial position of the radio station you're hearing or if you listen online take note of the website address knowing how you connect with the bible study hour will help us serve you better i'm mark daniels a preacher's dream is to have the spirit of god move in the hearts of men as they listen to his sermon but few preachers have ever experienced the conversion of 3,000 souls as the result of a singular message Join Dr. James Boyce next time on the Bible Study Hour as he examines Peter's first and greatest sermon to the people of Jerusalem. That's next time on the Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.